been going to church for a while, you establish a pattern, a routine, and you feel like you know what to expect, you kind of got it down, and you can lose sight of what you're really doing, what's happening. I want to read to you a story, tell you a little story, and read to you parts of it from a young lady who when she was in her teenage years, she was dating a young man and she knew it wasn't right and it was an unhealthy relationship. And it got to the point when she was 18 years old that she wanted to get out of that relationship. And when she left it, he then threatened to commit suicide and trying to strangle himself, take his own life. She couldn't leave. She felt like she was responsible for his happiness. A couple years later, he asked her to marry her and she didn't know how to say no. So she said yes, and she got into this relationship, and even as she was walking down the aisle, she knew something on the inside was saying that it's wrong, that this isn't, this isn't right for her, but yet she had already gone so far, and got, uh, the, the momentum was going, parents paid for the wedding, she's walking down, and on her face, she tried to make everything look good, but on the inside, she knew it wasn't good. Not too long after that, she, was, she found herself enduring the ongoing verbal and sexual abuse in this marriage. Not knowing what to do about it, not knowing how to get out. She found a Bible study program online and turned to the Lord. She started to dig into the word, and, and there was a change that took place. She said beforehand, she said, I remember praying that God would take my life. The abuse was overwhelming. My identity had formed around the words that were spoken to me on a daily basis, incapable, insufficient, insufferable. But I desired wholeness. And so she sought it through Jesus, and she started to dig into the word, and God's word started to, to change some things on the inside. And she was praying for her husband, but her husband wasn't responding. In fact, he wanted nothing to do with that or her Jesus got to the point where she knew she had to go a different way and break that off, file for divorce, and move forward with her life. She said, it felt strange building my relationship with, the, with Jesus at the same time I was getting a divorce. I knew what the Bible said about it, but I felt guilty. What I didn't know is how much God cared for me as an individual. He is the God who sees me. Someone invited her to the rock. And she said, it was at the rock that I discovered God's love for me. I heard messages that helped me understand God's ways. The pastors here believe that what the Bible says is true, and the culture at the rock is to live out the teachings, not simply to hear the message and apply it when it's convenient, because it's never convenient. It's through the bold teaching of the Word of God, both in services and through OSL, that I learned my my play, I learned to place my hope in Jesus. I learned how to pray the word of God. I learned that I was in need of forgiveness and that I was forgiven. I learned to carry myself with more authority because I carry the Holy Spirit. I learned that I am not incapable, insufficient, or insufferable, and that I am, in God's eyes, delightful, righteous, and worthy of every bit of the pain that Jesus went through. I learned how God can work all things together for our good. And I learned to let him heal me. And he did. 
In 2015, I married a man of God who radiates love. There was a time when I would have thought myself unworthy of such a man, but now I just count it an honor to be one with someone who so clearly sets his eyes on the kingdom. Together we serve the Lord as we allow him to be the center of our relationship and the center of our lives. Our family at the Rock strengthens us, keeps us accountable, and brings us joy. That's what we're after. We're not after a church service. We're not after a gathering of people just for the sake of gathering and singing songs and being inspired by a good-looking pastor. I'm not saying that's not happening, but that's not what we're after. This is what we're after. It's these stories behind the faces of the people who sit in these chairs, who we mingle with, we fellowship with, we talk to, we serve with, we jump into class with, we sing with, we pray with, we eat with. It's those stories of transformation that we're after. And that's just one. But it isn't just one because it's the story of all those who are impacted and will be impacted by that person's life. That right there reminds us why we do what we do. That this isn't just church as usual and we're not just coming together to say, let's be good people and do good for our community. But it's people like that who need a real encounter with the Lord Jesus to find out who he is so they can learn who they are. That's what we're after right there. And that's a powerful story. That's our why. That's why we do what we do. And there's so many of those stories sitting right here. There's so many of those stories that are looking at me right now. You've got a powerful story of healing and hope and restoration behind those eyes. And you know what? There are chairs sitting next to you whom God wants to fill with, peop- fill with people who have a similar story. I want to read a scripture to you from Isaiah chapter 61. I love the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is full of real-time prophecy and hope. It says this in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 4, and I want us to read this from the screens. And for the sake of us all reading the same words, uh, let's, let's do it from the screen out loud and loudly together. Let's go. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I think about what we're doing as the rock and why we're doing it. And scriptures like this come to my mind, where God is the one, and he sits there and says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. It's not just a recent thing, but it's been happening for generations. When you read scriptures like that, oftentimes, I don't know about you, but I can think of my life and I think I have a pretty solid life now. I feel like I'm in a good place in life. I've got a healthy marriage. I've got a healthy family, physically healthy, emotionally healthy, financially we're healthy. I think about, you know, my future, and I think I've got a good future in front of me. I think about my safety and security, and I feel good about that. I feel confident and comfortable in that. And when you live that way, you can assume that it's like that for everybody, and you'll read a scripture about the ruined city, and you'll kind of think, yeah, you know, maybe somewhere in the Middle East or, or downtown Detroit or some impoverished area, there's these ruined cities. 
But when we look at any area, any city, or any people who are living less than the plan of God for their life, we realize that for generations, there's been desolation, there's been devastation, it's been messed up for far too long. And though it may not be ruined for you, you drive through the midst of it. You shop next to those people. Sometimes you walk past their house because they're your neighbor. Your kids go to school with them. You work with them. You hear about them. You see them on the street. You see them in the restaurants. You see that there's a lot of brokenness around. When we think about Kalamazoo, we think this is a pretty good, solid Midwest town, city. And there are a lot of positive things about our area that we live in, but yet there's still too much brokenness. If you start to look at some of the statistics, I'll put them on the screen for you, some numbers and and statistics. It says that about 33% of Kalamazoo residents live below the poverty line. This is just the city limits. There's about 76,000 people in our city itself, not to mention the county, but one out of three live below the poverty line. That means they're living paycheck to paycheck, or maybe not even that. Let's look at some more. 48, Kalamazoo is ranked number 48 of the most dangerous cities in America to live based on the amount of violent crime per 1,000 residents. But see, if you're like me, you're not directly affected by that because of maybe the grace of God on your life. But I interact with people who are, and we have people in our church who live that out. And they're in the midst of that. There's worse than that. There's people outside of our church and outside of any church that live in the midst of that. And so they don't have hope. They don't have somebody who's coming alongside them. Let's look at another one. Overall crime rate is 91% higher than the national average. Right here in good old safe Kalamazoo, where don't publish this, where I I don't lock my car doors (laughs) often enough. A third of Michigan households have children under the age of 18 that live in a single-parent household. That's true here in Kalamazoo. About one-third have kids in a household with a single-parent household, uh, in a single-parent household. That affects how the kids raise. It affects who's at home when they come home. It affects behavior. It affects their their habits, their patterns. It affects their influences. It affects uh, their self-worth and value, their work ethic. It affects their character, their integrity. It affects their performance at school. Thank God for single parents who are doing everything they can. But it's not easy on the parent or the child. Another thing it says is that children living with a single mother are six times more likely to live in poverty than children living with two parents. So it's tough, and it's all around us. There's more, though. There's more. In 2016, 600 women were reported to have had abortions in Kalamazoo, the city. 600 babies' lives were taken And it's not just the child, but it's the effect it has on the mom, it's the effect it has on the family, it's the effect it has on a culture that would do that, support it, deal with that. Accidental drug overdoses more than doubled last year in Kalamazoo. Let's look at this next thing, next slide. Here, we we talked about some of the pain, the the, uh, problems in our community. You know, we're not even getting into other areas of crime, the corruption. We're not getting into 
uh, all the addictions and, and drug use and, and alcoholism and just talking about the abandonments and the abuse, the neglect. There's so, many, so much pain and so many problems, but there's also so much opportunity. Right here it says 47% are under the age of 24 here in Kalamazoo. 47% of our population is under the age of 24. Why is that an opportunity? Because this is a great harvest field. And all those things that we look at as pain and problems, they're also opportunities for hope and healing. When we look at all these kids, all these young people who are in our community, and we are sensing the stir of God on the inside, we see the harvest is great before us. The harvest is great. Do I have another one? That's my, that's my, my last slide for you. You have to look up the numbers for yourself, but to see the opportunity that God has put before us. When we look around and we see, well, what ruined city? Well, there's some numbers and there's some opportunities right there. And God is saying this to us. He said, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. One of the reasons why I wanted to put up the number and the percentage of this younger generation is because this stuff can change. And we can change what happens in future generations. And God has called us to have an impact. He's given us the rock as an opportunity to be part of the transformation as opposed to just part of the problem. Because the problem is not just what is being done, but the problem is also what's not being done. And so we don't want to be part of the problem of not doing anything. We want to help to be a part of rebuilding, restoring, renewing. The question is, as we read scriptures like that, is who will do that? Who will do that? Who is God calling to do it? If you read the scripture and you look at the very first word we read, in fact, can you guys read just the first word all together, open screen test? Who's going to do it? They. Notice that God doesn't say, I will do it. He says, they will do it. So he's talking about they. They is them. Who's them? Who's they? They are the ones that uh, are spoken of in verses 1 through 3. So if you back up in those verses when you're reading, you see this, and it's a passage that we would also find in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus said, this right here, this passage is talking about, about, about me, what I do, what I'm here for. But when we read it from Isaiah 61, uh, the first three verses, it says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedoms for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then verse 4 says, they will rebuild the ruins, the ancient ruins. Who's going to do it? He says, it's not just everybody, it's not just anybody, but it's those people who have been delivered. Those people who have been healed, those people who have been set free and comforted by the Lord. When he says it's the day of the Lord, he's referring to that jubilee where he says all slaves are to be set free on this day. 
all debts are to be re, re, uh, are are to be forgiven. All land is to be restored, and, and, and Jesus is the one who this is referring to, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon. This is a messianic prophecy, and it's on Jesus, and Jesus is saying, this is what I'm doing in people's life. And as I go around and I do this in people's life, then they will go out and they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They're the ones that are going to restore. They're the ones that are going to renew. It's those who have personally experience this by the Lord. You see, it's not a government agency. It's not a group of invest, uh, investors. It's not people who are just concerned citizens that are going to make the long-term eternal difference. It's those who are called by His name who have experienced the presence of God in their own life. It's those people like that story I just read to you in the very beginning who takes what God has done in her life and she pours it into others. Isaiah chapter 58, 12 says it like this. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is what God is speaking over us at The Rock. And when I think about why we exist and what we're going after and who we are as a church, these are scriptures that remind me of that so that we don't fall into the pattern of church as usual or just doing more church because that's not what God's called us to. He has said this of us, that we will rebuild ancient ruins, that we're to go out there and we're to see the brokenness and we're to get out, you know, get our hands out and, and build this city back up. The people, the lives. We're not a construction company building buildings, but we are building solid lives. We are working with the brokenness of people all around us and their patterns and their habits and the injustices and so forth. And we're, we're the ones that go out there and make wrongs right. We're the ones that take brokenness and put it back together. We're the ones that go and take injury and we bring healing. We're the ones that go to where there's mourning and we bring the comfort and the joy because that's what the Lord has done in us. And this is what he's called us to do. This is our mission. This is why we exist. It's not to build a city. It's, it's the people. Our mission is building solid lives. That's who God has called us to be as a church, a church that builds solid lives. So when you ask, wonder, what does that even mean? What's a solid life? Well, look at all the brokenness and think, what does it look like when that's put back together? What does it look like when someone feels terrible about themselves and all they've heard is that they're worthless, that they have no value? And then suddenly the word of God starts to pierce their heart and build them up to where they realize I'm worth every bit of pain that Jesus, Jesus suffered for me. That's what a solid life looks like. What's it look like when you have families that are torn apart? A solid life looks like them healthy and put back together. What's a solid life? It's when you see somebody who was struggling with their alcoholism and just not able to kick it, but now they found freedom and deliverance in Jesus. What's a solid life? It's the one who wants to take their life and, and just give up at one point, but now, now, because somebody reached their hand out and loved them, invited them, shared with them, cared about them, prayed for them, now all of a sudden they don't want to take their life, they want to give their life for everybody. They want to serve others. 
What's a solid life? I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, it's whatever God's plan looks like in the midst of a broken person's life <laughs> to turn that around. You might look at your life like I look at mine now, and I think I am pretty solid, but you don't know where I came from, and God knows where I'm going. And though I've only known the Lord for about 24 years, since I was 17, for those of you who can't do math, that means I'm 28. <laughs> for those of you who can, it means I'm 41. But where will I be in 24 years from now? Where will my kids be? Generations that have been transformed, not ruined for generations, but now we'll have wholeness for generations. That's what God's called us. That's what he wants in your life and in your neighbor's lives and your family member's life and, and the people who don't even know God or care about God. That's what he wants in their life. We're, we're a, we are a mission-driven church. That's our mission, and we are a mission-driven church where God gets to do what he wants to do. And ever since the very beginning, that's been something that he said to us, and that's something we say, okay, Lord, do what you want to do. He's told us, don't build it like just an ordinary church, but you need to listen to what I'm saying and do that. And that's what we've built our model or approach on. We built it on a prophetic directive from Jesus. A prophetic directive. Now, the whole Bible, you can say that it's prophetic. And you, you can and should, and we do say that the whole Bible is the Word of God. And so when you build your life on, on the Bible, you build it on the Word of God, uh, you're, you're headed in the right direction. But you know, sometimes there are th times when you're reading the Bible, and something step, stands out to you, and it's not simply like, yeah, the whole Bible's to me, but right at that moment, God is speaking to you through that verse. And so it's not like that with every verse, and it may not be like that every time you crack your Bible open, but there are times, and you guys would know this, that God is just saying, this message is for you. And we have a message like that in our church, and you hear about it uh, quite often as you're around, and it's from Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. And this is a passage that we talk about. It's, it's the foundation for who we are as a church and why we are set up the way we're set up and why we emphasize the things that we emphasize. I can't speak to you about why other churches do what they do. Some of them have great outreaches to the homeless. Some of them have, you know, food pantries. Some of them have holiday bazaars. Some of them have all these things. I can't tell you why they do what they do. All I can tell you is why we do what we do. And it's because we have a conviction that, that through reading the scripture and how do we, how do we build this church from the early days that, that God is saying to us, this scripture is what you build it on. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Now, that word Lord, it means master. It means controller. It means owner. It means decision maker. And so if Jesus is saying, you know, he's not just saying this is a religious title, but you're, you're describing me as somebody that should be able to tell you what to do, and you do it, right? And he said, why would you tell me, call me your decision maker, but not do what I say. Verse, then he goes on and he says this, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. 
He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing, everybody say, did nothing. This guy's a do nothing. He's a hear something, but he's a do nothing. He who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. When Jesus is telling this story, he makes a contrast between two different people. Both of them, it's inferred that they came, and both of them heard, but only one of them did something with it. The other one heard, but didn't apply it. And so when Jesus said, the storm came to both of them, and how many of you guys would say, man, I gave my life to the Lord, and there's still days of trouble, right? There are still difficulties. There are things that go wrong. There's things that come against me. Not everything has just always just worked out. There's been adversity in life. Coming to God does not free you up from, it, from all adversity, though I'll tell you this, it sure will help you avoid a lot of it. I know this as someone who's, whose ways have been uh, pleasing to the Lord and, and, and my heart and desire to, to honor Him as much as I can. Boy, that saved me from all kinds of drama that I, I used to be in, <laughs> self-inflicted wounds for the most part. And Jesus says that storm comes, and the only one left standing at the end of it is the one who acted on His words. And so when we read passages like that, we think about the kind of church that God is calling us to build, and it's not a church of people who, who, who come and sing lots of songs for an experience, though we expect an encounter with the Lord every time. It's not a, just a group of people who can quote the Bible from, you know, from memory, and they, they know what scripture applies to every situation, and they can, they can teach and instruct and counsel, although we want to be transformed in the renewing of our mind with the fresh, true Word of God. But it's those who would encounter the presence of the Lord, those who would be transformed by the truth of God, renewed in their mind by the truth of God, but those who would take that to heart and put it into action. And that's what God has called us to do. And so our whole ministry model or approach is built on this scripture in two ways. One is, I think that this is the definition of a Christian. A Christian is not someone who identifies with a certain theological set of beliefs, although there are common beliefs that identify us. But a Christian, if you're to boil it down to, to what is the best biblical description of a Christian, it's someone who comes to Jesus, hears his sayings, and does them. Wash, rinse, repeat. And do it over, over, and over again. And so it's not someone who came to Jesus, heard his sayings, and did it that one time. But to be a Christian, a true follower of Jesus, someone who is solid in this life where everything is shaking, it's someone who comes to Jesus, hears his sayings, and does them. Three steps to a solid life. Come. What's the next one? Hear. Third one, do. And so when we look at that, we know that the, the call of God on our church is to help people learn how to come, hear, and do. 
And so when we talk about the things we talk about and, and, and we, we plan the things we plan and, and, and we gather around what we gather around, it's really based on those three things. See, even as a church, we have our model built on come here to come as services. When we come together for our services, that's the time we come together to, to, to honor the Lord and to celebrate Jesus and have an, a, a true intimate encounter with God. And so we don't just sing songs because every church has to sing songs, even though other churches may sing songs at the beginning, at the same time we do. They may not even sing the same songs, but we know the reason that we do it is not just because this is how church goes, but the reason why we come to church on weekends is because we're coming to Jesus. And we're gathering corporately as the family of God. And we're all pouring our heart out before the Lord. And we're saying, God, we honor you. God, you, you deserve part of my time. Lord, the, the people of God around me are important and valuable to me, just like they're valuable to you. Lord God, we, we come here to put you first in our life. Now, we know that all these things kind of intertwine in the midst of this. But when we look at our services, we look at come here, do, we think services. Let's come to Jesus. Let's all come to Jesus. When we look at here, this disciple, this follower of Jesus here, is, we think of discipleship. And that's why we emphasize discipleship so much. And we talk about it as discipleship and not just Bible studies. I love Bible studies. They're great. They're, they're helpful. They're important. You should take part in them. But a Bible study is not the equivalent of discipleship. A dis discipleship is coming alongside and having someone challenge you to let things go and then holding you accountable as to whether or not you did that. And they're the ones that are challenging you to fast from certain things and fill your heart and mind with the Word of God and flood your life with it. And that's what we do in OSL, which is our primary, though not only way, of discipleship. But we emphasize it not because it's just a program and get with the program, but because we know that if you will set apart uh, more time for the Lord and get His Word in you, if, if we can help you to start your day off by opening your Bible and, and, and hearing from God, if we can help you to set aside some distractions and fill your heart with the Word of God throughout the week, if we can help you to memorize that word and get it inside, hidden in your heart, if we can help you to, to, to find your place in, in serving and helping out and just be faithful and consistent, we know this, you're going to cut a new groove and it's going to change your life. And so we emphasize discipleship. And the funny thing is, and it's not funny at all, it's terrible, it's, it's, it's part of the neglect of the church. It's, you could almost call it abuse. And if, you, if you think neglecting your child is a form of abuse, then I think this would be a, for, a form of uh, church abuse to where we neglect discipleship. And we never challenge people to spend time with Jesus daily. Yeah. And people will go through Christian life for years and years and years and never know, never know about spending time in the Word daily, never know about talking to God. Never know about his love, never know about his covenant, never know about his promises, never know how to grow in their personal relationship every day. And then they get into a class like OSL, and it'll either transform them, or if they've been taught wrong, it'll break them because they'll sit there and think, that's legalistic. <laughs> legalistic? To want you to spend time with Jesus every day? The one who died for you? The one who gave himself on the cross, and I'm just saying, hey, would you give, give him 20 minutes a day? 
You want them for eternity, but you don't want them for 20 minutes? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? And so we take it seriously, and I know it's uncomfortable, and I know it's challenging, and I know that we don't always want that part. But we can't get away from the prophetic word when Jesus said, teach him to come, teach him to hear, and then help him to do. And so we have our services, we have our discipleship, it's come here, but we have, we have the do part, it's the ministry. It's the teams. It's life-giving teams where we're shoulder to shoulder with this in the ministry, and there's so many different parts of that. But we emphasize that here, and that's why we have such a, a, a large percentage of people who are on teams here at The Rock and are continuing to join teams, and we give opportunity for it, not because we need more help. Listen, we can do less stuff. We don't need more help. No one's just helping out God. We have a mission here. We have, uh, we have a call of God on our life. Not we only, but you. You have something that God has created you for that only you can do. And our job as a church is to help unlock that and give you opportunity to discover that. And so we, we emphasize, hey, jump on a team, not because you just need to do something, because God's created you for something. And, and guess what? There's someone like in this story I read that maybe would have missed out if someone else didn't pull them alongside and do their part. How many people out there are waiting for the people of God to be challenged to step up? So what does Jesus want? He wants us to be solid. How do we become solid? Come, hear, and do And that's what we emphasize in every part of our church, our services, discipleship, and teams, or ministry. That's what we do. In the midst of that, we know this, that God is building a mighty army, a community, a family, a force to rebuild the ancient ruins. Why do we build solid lives? Why do we gather together in services? Why do we challenge people to set apart their time and fill their hearts with the word of God? Why do we create these teams that feel like family? Why do we go and cast more nets? Why are we we extending into another campus here in the community? Aren't there already churches downtown? Aren't there other churches in our area? Don't we have some open seats by us right here? Why do we keep going? It's because we believe an encounter with the living God will change everything. It's because we believe one word from God spoken to a lonely, broken, lost heart will change a life forever. That's why we do a discipleship. It's because we believe this encounter will ignite a compassion that moves to action. And that's why we do teams. It's because we believe that the true gospel of the kingdom of God is enough to turn the world right side up. And that's why we take it to the four corners of this world. We believe that together we are carriers of a God encounter to a very lost world. We are those who are the ones who rebuild those ancient ruins where there has been for generations destruction and devastation and an attack. And the Lord has called us together and is calling us further into this. And so we've got to capture this with our heart. We've got to grab a hold of it and say, Lord God, Whatever it is that you have planned in the next 
season of my life, years that I have left of my life, in this season of history, wherever I set my foot, Lord, I want to be part of what you're doing. I want to be part of that. And as a church, as a pastor, I say, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. And so everybody that God brings here, I say, come with us. Be part of that. You won't, you won't regret it. You won't want to miss out on what the Lord is doing. And I believe the Lord is calling us even today to step further into that, that we would surrender ourselves to him, that we would yield ourselves to him. Maybe you think about the next step for you. It might very well be, hey, you know, maybe you're newer to church. And it's like, okay, God is saying, just be there consistently. Remember, it's not about just being in church and filling a seat. It's having that encounter with Jesus. Maybe it's actually stepping into discipleship, saying, okay, God, I'm going to go deeper with you. Maybe, it, maybe it's jumping on a team. Maybe there's something else. Maybe you're doing those things. But what is God calling you to do? Deeper, further. That's what we need to respond to.